is Let's Geek Pod. Welcome. For those who are tuning in for the first time, we want to say thank you so much for clicking us. We hope that you still continue to click on us. For those who do not know, we are a podcast where it's two geeky ladies talking about issues in our lives. We talk about relationships, gossip, and sometimes you do get political. Today's episode is a special episode because we are going to be talking to Mr. Lani Extravaganza, who is part of House Extravaganza, which is part of the ballroom scene. So he's going to tell us about his life, and also he's going to educate us on the ballroom scene, and he's going to educate us on his house. So thank you so much, Mr. Lani, for joining us. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for coming to the pod. Like, we're really excited. Like, literally, I've been excited for this for like a long time because I'm just like, oh my God, it's like talking to royalty. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, like, I really, really enjoy this. But just to to begin, so the whole thing about ballroom is that ballroom has really been growing in popularity, especially in the mainstream media lately. So how would you personally describe what ballroom is to people who don't know anything about it or the children that are coming into it? Okay. Well, first of all, ballroom is um, a way to uh, be something that at the, at, back in the 80s and in the, in the early 90s, careers and fashion models and, uh, you know, DJs and things like that, that uh, gay, uh, bisexual and lesbian people, they just weren't able to do. They just didn't have the same opportunities as straight people. So ballroom allowed you to come in and fantasize and uh, be that person uh, that you couldn't really be in real life, if, if that makes any sense to you. Oh, it definitely does make sense. <laughs> yeah. it, it could be a, an executive. It could be um, somebody in the military. It could be a um, simple housewife um, for, um, what do you call it, for uh, transgender women. It was the opportunity for them to showcase themselves, you know, in a positive light where they got to show off, um, show their beauty and their, their you know, back skills in, in different, in different very, uh, very different ways. So that's in a nutshell, kind of what, what ballroom is. Um, it basically is the, how do you say it? It's the unreal reality, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it definitely makes sense. Of course, I know personally this is not exactly the same, but I just see a similarity about it. I mm-hmm. actually went to theater school. And of course, you know, when you get into, when you practice, you get into a role. Whereas, of course, it's not exactly the same, but like you explained for ballroom, you got to convince yourself because if you That's can't right. convince yourself yeah, in this room, you can't do it out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like how you go on stage. So you do come from the House of Extravaganza, like we have stated earlier. For mm-hmm. anyone who doesn't know its history in the beginning, what can you tell us about it, especially since it's a legendary house? Okay, well, the, the House of Extravaganza was born out of a lack of Latin represent, representation in the ballroom scene. Um, it was started by uh, a man named Hector Valle, uh, a Puerto Rican man, a dark-skinned Puerto Rican man like myself. Um, he founded the house and, uh, basically he wanted to be a part of the scene, but in order for you to be a part of the scene, you had to go out and prove 
uh, in battles if you were better than the other people that were competing. So uh, he founded the house and uh, later on, uh, Mother Andy became the mother of the house and she became a tour de force uh, when it came to recruiting kids and uh, competing in the ballroom. Uh, if you notice that, uh, that episode of Pose in the first season where Blanca walked her first ball, yes. that, scene, uh -huh. that scene is based on Mother Andy. Yes, I, I actually did notice the similarities because I did see a clip from Paris is Burning where she was mm -hmm. being presented the Mother of the Year Award and I literally saw it to the parallel. I was like, oh my gosh, like it's the same yeah. exact thing. Like the, the show is really based on, um, loosely based on actual experiences that happen in real life to real people. Um, that's really what I liked about the show. Uh, but going back to the House of Extravaganza, we are worldwide. Uh, we are entrepreneurs. We are fashion models. We are, we still compete in ballroom. Um, but when we come out, we're only coming out to win. So we rarely walk. But when we do walk, it's to win, and we do. So um, again, we're worldwide. Uh, I'd say we're close to about 1,200 or 1,500 members wow. worldwide. We're very big. Um, and this is uh, encompassing people that have been in the house since 1982, it's founded the year. So it's not just um, you know the people that are actively walking balls now, it's everybody that's from the uh, early 80s up till now. And we recruit heavily every year. We only take the highest quality people um, because it's a brand. And so that brand has to be upheld in every way. We, we don't just accept anybody. Understandable. Would, um, would you say it's almost like similar to a fraternity or a sorority? It is very similar to a fraternity or sorority in the sense that there's that, um, that uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, everybody in the house is your brother or your sister, and you look out for them as you would someone that's your um, actual blood family. Um, the way that I came uh, to know the House of Extravaganza is, um, the way that I came to know the House of Extravaganza is one day I just happened to be walking in the village and um, a, a friend of mine who's a photographer asked me to do some poses for him just to see if we could get some good shots and practicing. So he ended up selling those, those pictures to a, a magazine called HX Magazine. And I was on the cover of the magazine. And so yeah. Hector, uh, Hector, grandfather Hector saw that cover and recruited me, came right to me and told me, we want you to be in the house. We want you to walk face. We want you to walk body. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. So as I got to know them, that was in 1994. As I got to know them, uh, I became more and more interested in balls. I was actually, I was already a grown man when I came out. The, you know how the, the typical story is, you get kicked out of your house and for being gay or whatever. That didn't happen to me. Oh, yeah. I'd already, oh. I, I had just graduated college. And I just happened to come out at that time. And so um, as I'm you know, getting to know myself, they were helping me to grow as a gay man. So once my, once my family did find out, we did have a separation for about 11 years. 
So I didn't have the benefit of having them, even though I was already out of the house. I, I couldn't go back home, if that makes sense. Mm, so understand. the story is a little bit similar. Uh, I've been in the house since uh, 1994. And um, in that time, I, I walked uh, three categories. I walked executive realness, I walked faith, and I walked body. And uh, I'm basically retired now, but uh, I still enjoy attending balls. Uh, I still like uh, the whole thrill of it. Um, and it's nothing like it. it. You can watch it on TV, but it's nothing like being there. So the atmosphere is, is different. It, it is. It's dynamic. It is thrilling. It's exciting. And the way that they keep the energy going is um, the, the categories that they put together for the ball, those categories are set up so that it, it builds to a dramatic end, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, <clears throat> that so finale right. spectacle. So it could be very, very intense, but it's so exhilarating. That's nice. That is so cool. Um, Yasmin, you did have a question about ballroom recently. Do you want to yeah. ask? Um, okay, I did. Okay, so I, you know, recently I didn't know anything about ballroom until Pose came out. And I think that's mostly everybody's story, um, mm -hmm. at least from the people who are from the outside, right, looking in. So yeah. as I was scrolling, getting my little, um, you know, research and going into the rabbit hole of YouTube and looking into ballroom <laughs> and then I saw somebody say something really interesting and I was wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little bit more or like kind of educate me more you did talk about it a little bit because there was not representation of the black and then uh, Latino community and the LGBTQ plus community so somebody had mentioned saying Racism within the LGBTQ plus community is what led to the necessity and creation of ballroom. So I was just wondering what your thoughts on a statement like that, because I thought like out of all the comment section I was scrolling through that like hit me the most in terms of like being really curious, because again, like I had little to zero, no education in what was going on with the LGBTQ plus community, you know, back in the early 80s and then mm -hmm. watching Pose. I know they do talk a little bit more about that and you can see that through uh Blanca and all the cast members there, or the characters in, in the show. Yeah, well, um, back in the 70s and um, 60s and 70s, um, everything was segregated. Uh, it was not only segregated in, in the country, but it was segregated in the smaller community. Um, so the, the LGBT community was uh, very, very racist at that time. Uh, none of the clubs or bars were open to Black or Latinos. Um, they, uh, the, the Blacks and Latinos basically ended up having to do throw parties and throw balls. Balls were originally like parties uh, where you did compete, but they were like parties so that we would have uh, activities like uh, white gays to do, uh, things like that to do. Uh, and then it kind of evolved into uh, a... a um, it, it, involved in, it evolved into a community where we could uh, be and express ourselves 
and not have to worry about getting kicked out of the bar or not being able to get in or anything like that. They created underground parties. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you call those? The house parties? I don't know if you... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but it's not really a house party because it's at an actual club. Yeah. But it's, it's only for house music and it's basically um, Blacks and gays. Uh, Blacks and, and, and Latins, I mean. So... Um, Going back to uh, your question, um, everything was very segregated. And yes, ballroom was one thing that, um, that evolved from the segregation, but also um, uh, clubs for house music and people that, that follow that type of thing. That evolved from, from that segregation as well. As things got better in the 80s, um, you know, as, as I said, there was no Latin representation in the ballroom until 1982. And um, we were the first house to represent the Latin community. And when Mother Angie came on board, she saw fit to open it up to not just Latin, but she was all inclusive. So it's not only Latin people in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's Blacks in the house, there's um, white people in the house, there's um, Asian people in the house. Uh, and we're all one big family. Oh, that's beautiful right there. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, a lot of us struggle to, you know, wanting to belong somewhere and knowing that's how their the community was built. It's just beautiful, mm-hmm. especially, you know, again, like we may have referenced a lot of pose here because I feel like this is a great exposure into, you know, a little bit of what happens inside especially in in houses and stuff um so uh speaking of houses and continuing with the ballroom uh our follow-up question is what are the struggles that the houses have um in ballrooms i guess in terms of like you know um I guess you're saying, like, is it hard, like, to build a house? And then when you're coming into the ballroom scene, like, do you have any certain struggles? Like, okay, how do we get our clothes? How do we, like, pick a category? How do we know who we're going to send in? Is it, like, a whole entire process? Because, you know, uh, me personally, looking from the the outside, looking in, it looks so stressful. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Like, I get stressed looking at it. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Well, um... That is precisely the reason that the house has a mother and a father. They basically uh, discern what you're good at, and then they uh, nurture and teach you how to do that category the way it should be done. They um, help you do your research. They help you get dressed. They might even buy the outfits. They may be able. They may put on the full production for you. They would do all of that in order to win the trophy and the cash and to be a superior house in the ballroom scene. We have been a, a, a um, pioneering legendary house for you know, almost all of the existence, all of our existence. So when our parents would send somebody out, they weren't going out there to just get 10, they were going out there to win. And nine times out of 10, they did. Amen. <laughs> so that's basically the they're not really struggles in the sense, but there's a structure. So you don't really have to uh, put yourself through it in order to uh, get to where you want. If you say, um, if, if your uh, house parents tell you, well, I think you should walk face, 
and you don't feel that you can really walk that category and be excellent at it, then you can always suggest another category that you feel comfortable doing and they will go to the mat for you to help you to get to the point where you could be rep representative of the, of the House of Extravaganza without question. They're gonna know when you hit the runway. So 2020 was rough for people because, you know, of the pandemic, like we were discussing a little bit earlier before recording, how mm -hmm. was it last year, like for everyone, since, you know, nobody could go into restaurants, you know, go to the mall, like it was complete. How was that for everyone or just you and your house? Well, um, we stayed in touch virtually. Most of, most of us, um, they didn't touch virtually. And believe it or not, they had virtual ball. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. They said that this ain't so stopping cool. me now. <laughs> what is that like? Yeah. Do you just like I, have the outfit and you're like You did the whole thing. It was a whole production. And it was so funny because um it was done over Zoom and Teams and um what's I think there's another one. I can't think of the name of it, but they would uh, charge a minimal fee for you to join that that meeting, and whatever money that they collected went towards the prizes that that people would win if they won a trophy at this ball. So I mean, they tried to keep it moving, you know. But um, for me in particular, uh, it was really uh, devastating because I'm literally by myself an entire year, and you know, with minimal contact with anybody. So mm -hmm. it, uh, I'm saying face-to-face uh, -face contact with anybody. So um, it, it wreaked havoc on my psyche a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I noticed since I'm going out now, going to places now, that I'm a little hesitant to stay in, in some place where there are more than like five or 10 people. I'm hesitant to stay in there. I'll wait until people come out before I'll go in again. So uh, that yeah. is kind of strange to me because I'm not that type of person. I'm very outgoing and I'm, I'm very uh, personable, but I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, the whole six distancing. Yeah. I just need three. I just need three. I'm good. <laughs> I've really realized I need my space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yasin, you want to tell me about that TED talk you saw the other day? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you know how I was telling you that I was in the rabbit hole of YouTube and watching mm -hmm. uh, Ballroom and even watching some, uh, I guess, people uploaded some um, uh, some of the categories they were walking. And then mm -hmm. I ended up coming across, oh my goodness, uh, I forgot his name, but I'll put the link in our description box and I'll probably put like a video over my face. <laughs> but um, there was... Um, a guy talking about the language it's a ted talk talking about the language of vogue which tells the story through hands catwalk spins dip and the infamous duck walk and mm -hmm. um i thought that was really interesting he gave like a beautiful uh presentation and he had um other people dance to some of these performances mm -hmm. so my question is is there any more um you know, dances that are like that or, you know, others that we don't know? Well, Vogue is, uh, has been evolving for decades. Um, Vogue came, uh, came from, uh, I don't, I don't want to attribute it to one particular person because everybody was doing it and doing yeah. it well. 
but the people that um, I remember and uh, know of that basically started Vogue um, was um, a transgender woman named Paris Dupree. And uh, she started voguing in prison as a way of entertaining herself. And basically she would, what she would do is she would uh, mock the poses that she saw in the magazine. She would, she would do them and then exaggerate them. And then she put that to music and boom, that, that was the, uh, the birth of Vogue, so to speak. Wow. I wouldn't and have guessed. I, me neither. <laughs> I didn't even know. Like, you know, they, they just say, oh, she looked in the magazine and that was, wow. I didn't know. Wow. Yep, there, right. I guess there was so, enough to that story right there. She did, I mean, she did it. <laughs> right. It was literally created uh, from a transgender woman just exaggerating the poses that she saw in a magazine and then she put them to music and it became a whole thing and everybody knew how to do it. Um, the, the, uh, the ones that stick out to me in my life are uh, Paris Dupree, uh, Lily Ninja, uh, my father, Hector Extravaganza, uh, one of my house sisters, Melissa Extravaganza, may she rest in peace. Um, I don't know if you've heard this um, song called Elements of Vogue. Elements yes, of Vogue. I actually have that on my phone. Okay, yeah, so it's, Elements it's, of Vogue uh, was created yeah. uh, by my house brother who is no longer with us, that, uh, David Ian Extravaganza. Um, but uh, those things, they just kept evolving and evolving it, to different styles. Like what I described to you by Paris, uh, Paris Dupree, that's considered old way. Then there's a new way, which is even more exaggerated and stretching. Then there's a Vogue Femme. And uh, the Vogue Femme is, uh, male dancers voguing as if they were women, you know, very soft, uh, or uh, it could be very dramatic. There's so many different uh, uh, ways to describe it, but each one of them is Vogue. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of categories, you already told us that your category was body, it was face, and um, what was the last one? Executive realness. Okay, what is it like doing them, especially since you got your tens? <laughs> well, like, is there um, a front process? The, the very first time that I walked, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified because, you know, I'd never done this before. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I letting somebody that couldn't do this job in real life, why am I letting them judge me on whether I present well enough to fool them that I do this job in real life? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, but, you know, the uh, back in the times that I was walking in the early 90s, uh, early to late 90s, the, the judges on the panel were uh, people who had had those hard lives that you saw in, uh, in Pose. They had those hard, uh, that hard upbringing in the street and whatnot. And I felt like, I couldn't possibly let this person judge me, you know? But then I got pushed down the runway and uh, after you get up there and they judge you, you get your tens or what have you, and you get to battle and see who wins, it becomes, it's really an exhilarating experience. You wanna do it again right away, you know what I mean? 
So um, it when when I was coming up, there were there would be like maybe ten or twelve balls a year, and we would only walk four of them. Mm, okay. We just felt like we were exclusive like that, and we didn't need to show up at every ball because we've already proven ourselves or who we are. So, um, well, I mean, you that, already put your mark, so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, uh, it was my house and a few others outside of my house that introduced the world to Vogue, um, and so we take that as a badge of honor because and. and um, and we wear it with pride because we feel like the stuff that we're they're doing in the ballroom these days, we were instrumental in getting that out to the world. You know, while you were in, while you were in the ballroom uh, uh, voguing and play acting, my house brothers were on the road making money doing the same thing that you're doing. You follow what I mean? Yes. So they they would have a, a sense of uh, arrogance, if you will and not want to waste their time with somebody they know they're going to destroy if that makes sense so <laughs> that's, just, that's our that's that's our um that is our mentality yeah so that's scorpio energy come on now well, you I, huh? <laughs> don't do that to me <laughs> don't do that to me she said that's scorpio energy i said hold up <laughs> <laughs> it's because sometimes I'll be talking like that. Oh, like why do I need to do this? Like, <laughs> right? And, and and it would be like that. But once you go out there and you've you've been able to battle and you've won a trophy, it's the most exhilarating thing in the world. And I never thought it would be that way for me, but it was. So, Mr. Um, Lanny, what can you tell us about House Mother Angie and, of course, House Grandfather Mr. Hector, the original founders? What can you tell us about them? Well, the original founder is Hector Valle, as I told you before, and um, he died back in 19, 1990, I want to say 1989, and uh, Mother Angie basically ran the house. Um, and uh, basically recruited all the kids and what have you. There was another father um, after after him. His name was uh, David. Um, what I'm trying to think. What did they call him? I can't remember what they called him, but he's still alive. He's still around. He's in Paris. Is burning. He's the one what? where the he's the one where they were telling him his mink coat was a woman's coat. Really. Yes, he was the father of the house of extravaganza. Wow. I yes. had no idea. Yes. So um, so those are uh, two of the, the founding fathers. Uh, when I came along in 94 is when I met Hector. Hector had not been the father of the house that long. Uh, Angie had died the year before I came in, uh, mm -hmm. but she was a fierce mother. She, she was... Um, she was a caretaker, she was a giver, uh, she was a nurturer, uh, a stern disciplinarian. Um, she was everything that I, I felt like if you're gonna have a mother of a house, that is the, that's the, the gold standard, in my opinion. Um, she just was fiercely protective of, of all of her kids and, and her house and her brand name. Uh, 
she was uh, a really loving and kind person. Um, I mean, there were uh, a few other mothers that came after her, uh, like Mother Carmen. Uh, Mother Carmen came into the house and, uh, as Mother Angie's daughter. And Carmen is legendary worldwide. She's a legendary worldwide entertainer. And um, she came in and she and Hector were the parents of the house when I came in. And so um, they became my parent, my personal parents, because they were the ones that nurtured me and they were the ones that taught me about ballroom and, and what's, uh, what the standards were and what I, what I needed to uh, do to meet those standards. So um, I, looked, I looked up to them quite a bit. But uh, again, there's so many, uh, the, the, the um, House of Extravaganza has so many uh, members with rich, rich, deep histories and so many moments in ballroom that they are revered to this day. And most of them, uh, most of those that I'm speaking of are already dead. But they, the things that they did when they were here and the marks that they made on culture, subculture, uh, the club life, uh, major nightlife in New York City, um, inclusive of, of uh, the clubs where all the celebrities went. We were just like royalty walking in. You know, we were VIP no matter where we went and still are to this day. Uh, that was one of the things that I really liked about being in the house is that wherever I went in nightlife, it was carte blanche. I could do no wrong and they were gonna take care of me no matter what. And as they saw that I traveled, we traveled in packs. Like that's what houses do, we travel in packs. So when they see that you can bring a lot of people in, you know, that's money to them. So they're gonna treat you very, very well. Do you follow what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, the, the going back to the house, um, again, there's so many people with deep, rich histories in the house that have shaped the house and made it what it is today. Uh, but grandfather Hector is, uh, well-known worldwide uh, and he was Angie's son and he was the, the glue that kept the name alive because uh, for a while from around I'm sorry okay. no I know it's hard yeah. it my heart because this man was a real father to me in the sense that when, when my own father passed away, he was there for me. When I lost my family for 11 years, he was there for me and made sure that I, I felt loved and I felt accepted, even though my blood relatives did not. Um, I cannot say enough about him. He was just one of the most dynamic individuals I've ever met in my entire life in um, to know him was a real privilege because he touched the world. He really did. Um, everybody knew this man and everybody was loved by him. He, he just exuded it. Um, let me say that, that um, I remember back in 2008 when I was graduating with my master's in London. I wasn't talking to my, to my family at that time and nobody was going to be graduated. My father came to my graduation. He was there. And 
that makes the world for me. Because even though I had invited my blood relatives, they didn't show up and I didn't get a phone call, I didn't, I didn't have any contact with them, but they, but he showed me that that didn't matter. That the family that he gave me and he built to me loved me and would do what my blood did not. So, I mean, I could go on talking about this man all night. I really could. Um, because he really did mean the world to me and it, and it broke my heart for him to pass away. Um, because as, um, a lot of people just feel lost without that bright light, you know, shining on them. And, um, you know, I, I make it one of my goals with my own uh, personal experience to be that, that same man that he was to me. That's how I, 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 I was modeled, I modeled the way that I keep my own kids like, uh, like, with me. It's okay. If you want to take a minute. Take a break. Yeah. No, you want to take a break? Okay. So, what was it like growing up as a gay youth in New York? And is it different from the youth now? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to be honest with you, I don't feel like I grew up gay because I didn't, I didn't know that that's what I wanted uh, or the route that I wanted to go with my life uh, until I was much older. Um, so if there were any tendencies or any feelings that way, I, they were all uh, repressed uh, when, when I was younger. Um, I was uh, born in Englewood, New Jersey and uh, raised partially in the Bronx, New York. And then we moved back to <laughs> then we moved back to New Jersey to a little town called Park Ridge. We were the only ethnic family in the town at the time. We moved there in 1973. And uh, we were, like I said, the only ethnic family in the town at the time. So uh, imagine how uh, fun that was. But, <laughs> but um, you know, eventually, I mean, uh, as I came of age and I became uh, a man, you know, I, I just evolved. I, I had more connections with uh, men than I did with women. Even though I, I had dated women, I'd been with women. I have two biological children. So, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, we gonna get to that one too. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it's not that, that I didn't have, it's not that I never had any inkling that, okay, maybe that's what it is, but I didn't understand I would have more of an emotional connection with a man than I did with a woman. And so that is what really opened my, my eyes up to the fact that, oh, you know what, you, you're gay. That's, that's just it. Um, People that I encountered had different experiences. Um, I, the funniest thing is that I have I had a best friend that we didn't know each other as kids. We had no idea uh, about each other, but we lived a block away from each other the whole time, right? And when we when we met each other um, uh, as adults, we discovered like he knew all of my family and I knew all of his, I just didn't know him. Does that make sense? But 
his experience was very, very different than mine, even though his, his parents didn't throw him out of the house. You know, his family gave him a really hard time, you know, and it was the love of his mother unconditionally that allowed him to just thrive and and be who he let him be who he was. I didn't get that because I, I just was not I didn't have that in my head that, you know, what, you know, I had a girlfriend, but then my best friend, I would drop her and go and go wherever he was. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that that was that was me subconsciously having a connection more with a male than a female. So, um, you know, my, my, my coming out was a lot different than most people's in the sense that I, I came out very, very late. And um, when I came out, I felt the freest I'd ever been in my life. When I, when I admitted to myself that that's really what's going on. And, um, it, I mean, as far as New York is concerned, I mean, New York is dangerous. I don't care uh, how you look at it. New York at, back in those times was really, really dangerous, especially in the Bronx, especially in upper Manhattan where I live now. Um, you know, it was all the drugs and the violence and, you know, and you happen to be gay and, you know, if, if there were no outward signs, you'd be fine. But if you were out, outwardly gay, you know, feminine anyway, you would get beat. They would beat you. They would, they would you know, uh, rob you, kill you. They would do everything they could to debase you. And so I just didn't, I, I didn't have that experience, but I know so many who have. Does that make sense? Yes, so, um, you know, I empathize with them in the sense that, you know, I've experienced uh, the feelings that they had in different ways because I um, I grew up in the suburbs and I came out when I was uh, I was grown. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, being a youth in in New York City and like having that gritty life, I didn't experience that at all. But a lot, like my father did. He did. He left home at fourteen at 14 and had to fend for himself. And when I can, when I tell you this was one of the most resourceful people I'd ever met in my life, I really don't know how he did it. I, I used to call him uh, P.T. Barnum because he was like a showman and a magician at the same time. He, he just manifested things and it happened for him. Whatever he wished for, it happened for him. And um, if, it, if it didn't just uh, manifest uh, uh, organically, he made it happen. He, he did whatever work he needed to do to make it happen. So um, that I've, I've learned from him to be uh, loving and resourceful that way. Um, I've, I've made a, uh, what do you call it? I made a career in, in pharmaceutical sales for 20 years. And I'm getting my doctorate in, in pharmacology in May of 2022. Amen. I would, I would not have been able to do that without that, that man pushing me to be better than what, better than he was. He was, uh, uh, he and Mother Carmen were very instrumental in, in saying, you know what, you do, you're doing well, 
to walk these balls and everything, but I don't want you to get caught up in this because you actually have a chance. So you go to school, you go study, you, you're not walking the ball this time. What you're going to do is you're going to help somebody else walk the ball and you're going to stay on the books. That's what they used to, that's what they, they that's how they used to treat me. And I, mind you now, I, I told you, I'm already 22, 23 years old. And I'm like thinking to myself, who are these people? They saw something in me and wanted to nurture that because they didn't want for me what they had and the things that they had to do to survive. So that's how I am with, with my own kids. So, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm off topic or what have you, but that's really my lived experience. So, you know, <clears throat> my next question is, since you're from New York, what was it like during the AIDS pandemic? Like, how bad was it? And were you one of the people that protested? Like, you know, what was the experience like? Because personally, I was born in 1990 Mm -hmm. And I was a baby. I don't know what that was. I grew up, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, um, um, the AIDS pandemic really started around um, 1979. I was Wait, that I, really? Yes. Wow. That's when it it was um, spreading, and nobody knew what was happening. It was only in the 80s that they were really addressing it. Uh, the CDC and the NIH and um, the, you know, the, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the drug companies and what have you, they were only starting to address it then because, uh, they didn't know what it was. That's the first thing they thought it may have been, uh, animal to human, um, transmission, uh, when they realized that it wasn't that, and, you know, it still boggles the mind today that 40, uh, 40, almost 50 years later, um, there's still no uh, true, what do you call it? There's still, right, there's no no cure for it. There's no vaccine. There's nothing that, that they're able to do. Once a person progresses to AIDS, then it's an assured, assured death sentence. Back then, you know, uh, in 1979, I was 10 years old. So uh, we're going to be 10. And so I didn't have any lived experience with those years but growing up through the 1980s um i came to know about it through news reports through magazines through uh articles and through people that who were not gay that started to die when when it started to touch um heterosexual people that's when the cdc and the nih wanted to do something about it because it was killing gay people, so they didn't care. Um, I know uh, in, in my house alone, uh, from 1985 to 1993, we lost about 60 people to the AIDS pandemic. And um, it was labeled the, the gay man's plague lesbians weren't getting it, women weren't getting it, straight men weren't getting it. It was only um, gay men at the time. But when it started to spread because um, you know, of bisexual men, because of lesbian women who still dealt with men to some degree, um, when it started to spread to um, these people and it got 
you know, it killed celebrities and things like that. That's when it became important to the government and became important to the CDC. So they wanted to do the research on it to see what, um, what they could do to stem the tide of it. Excuse me. And, you know, fortunately for us, uh, they came out with a plethora of drugs uh, back then at the time, but the drugs were killing them faster than the disease was killing them. So they would um, make these powerful drugs that um, the liver and the kidneys could not process properly. And that would lead to kidney and liver failure. So, you know, you, you're basically damned if you do or damned if you don't, you're gonna die. So um, seeing that loss uh, be so big it, uh, and uh, seeing so many people lost to that reminds me of 2020 and the the current pandemic. You know, when uh, in my job, the mailroom clerk came down with COVID and there was 400 of us in that building and he touched everybody just about because everybody was getting mail or there was some kind of internal package that you were gonna get and he had to bring it to you. So you were gonna have some contact with him. Well, the, the, um, that one infection ended up being over 200 infections and out of them, 45 people died within three months, including the mailroom clerk. So seeing this happen now is very akin to what we were seeing back in the 80s. And again, I was, I was still a little kid, but you know, I, I did follow and I did hear uh, about um, this disease and how it was um, killing people and you know, what a miserable death it was. And COVID is the same thing. So um, as far as my own lived experience with the AIDS epidemic, um, I just knew of people who passed away from AIDS. I knew of people who, I'll give you an example. Um, AIDS was not the cause of their dying, but they had no immune system because of the drugs they were taking and because of the, the um, and because of the, the disease itself, HIV and, and um, right. so uh, he developed other things that actually contributed more to his death, like uh, liver and kidney failure, like uh, uh, Carposi sarcoma, and um, you know that's a that's a form of cancer. That that's like a, a cancer that back in the eighties they didn't have any cure for. They didn't know how to treat it at all, and more people were dying from that. And it would develop like lickety split. It was really quick. So um, mm -hmm. now they they have any number of ways to to treat it and do so. People don't die from that anymore but uh or at least not as many as back then but um the the person that i'm speaking about is willie ninja uh he was uh i i called him auntie he was auntie auntie willie to me uh because he and hector were so close and um i remember uh, hector and i going to see him in the hospice and um, he was very, very close to, to dying. And um, 
he had some kind of miracle turnaround and boom, he was up and back voguing in the clubs like a few months later. And um, then it hit him again. And the things that he went through with the kidney and liver failure, those are the things that really killed him, not the AIDS per se, but you know, he was HIV positive and the complications that he developed from having that, um, that disease manifested in other ways that really uh, contributed to killing him. Same thing with Hector. Hector uh, died of lymphoma. And um, Hector, Hector um, had, he was HIV positive since um, 87, I believe it was 87. And he was one of the first ones to take the first drugs that they had developed for um, people with HIV um, that have developed HIV uh, over that time. And those, strong, those drugs were really strong and powerful. He managed to uh, live with HIV for, um, what is it, uh, 30 plus years. And um, he was able to do that through the miracle of drugs. But there were so many that were diagnosed with HIV around the same time that he was, and they're not here. So, uh, and, and Willie, only died a few years before him. So it's in a testament to their resilience and what they did to try and survive that, that uh, epidemic. But again, we lost millions of people to that. And it was only dealt with worldwide when straight people started dying. You know, it's kind of funny because I was raised in Maryland, but I'm actually born in New York. Mm -hmm. I was born in Mount, um, I was born in Mount Vernon, and I have relatives in Bronx, so that's why I was okay. like, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's funny listening to you say, well, it's not funny, but my mom told me almost the exact same thing that you did, and it's just crazy because, you know, my parents are immigrants, mm -hmm. and they came around the late 80s, my mom came, my dad came 86, mom came in 88, so to hear you say that and then my mom experienced the same thing i just think it's so interesting especially you know two different mm -hmm. perspectives but it's still the same right but you know there have been events that the ballroom scene has you know created to bring awareness because like you said since they were being very irresponsible with you know putting out the message and precautions with this disease the gay, the LGBT community had to get the word out with their own. So they had like, oh, yeah. the, you know, the latex ball, for example. Right. We had to do for ourselves because nobody was doing anything for us. Um, that, that um, out of that crisis was born the Gay Men's Health Crisis Center, where, you know, a few uh, gay guys and a few lesbians got together and formed a committee to lobby the city for healthcare for people that were dying of AIDS. They weren't allowing them to be in the hospital a lot of times. And then when they were being allowed in the hospitals, they were uh, relegated to certain wards. And there were people, they were dying so fast, just like with COVID, they were dying so fast um, that you, you didn't really get to have anybody there with you 
because they didn't know how it was transmitted. And then um, when you did pass away in New York, I know for a fact in New York, they, um, they built mass graves on Hart Island and, and buried um, HIV and AIDS patients there away from any place they could ever be. And they didn't do the, the whole uh, embalming and funeral. And it, no, they put you in a box and they took you to Hart Island and they put you in the ground. And that is the most horrific thing that uh, I had ever witnessed uh, on TV or live in any way. And when COVID came, it was almost the same thing. Nobody wanted to. Nobody wanted to touch these people, and uh, they were burying burying them in boxes in Hart Island because, again, it, the the infection was so contagious. They didn't know what to do. And uh, while I get it, it's just horrific. It's really interesting that you said that because actually earlier in the year, um, I was living out in Los Angeles, and I came down here because you know Los Angeles got hit really hard with COVID, and. Yes. Do you remember, Kat, probably in the mid-season of season one of our podcast, I was reflecting on 2020. And then yeah. from that point, and then even till now, I literally said that. I felt like, I don't know if it was a reach, but because you literally confirmed what I was thinking, I was like, Kat, this feels like there's parallel to what it's happened back when HIV started. Nobody wanted to touch anybody, stay away from certain group of people, mm -hmm. you know, um, people were, because the death toll kept rising, they didn't know what else to do with the body, they were, they, yeah, they were using churches, they were using factories, they were, they were getting like locations anywhere, and I was just like, oh my goodness, this, like, I get goosebumps just thinking about it, because um, do you remember, do you guys remember that program? Mad. Is it made or mad? It was made or MTV? Huh? Was it MTV show? No, no, no. Okay. Oh. So Mothers I Against Drug Driving? Yeah. So actually, uh, no, sorry. Okay. So I grew up in DC and I, um, so what, yeah. So I was in one of like, I don't know if it was a poor school, but I knew programs that would come to our school. So the thing is, I remember during some of the AIDS pandemic, uh, they, they were do, passing out these flyers and research and stuff like that, because, you know, even so, like, we're talking about what, like, 90s-ish, mm -hmm. they, they were still talking about it, and I remember they were um, doing educational videos, I didn't understand what was going on, you know what I mean, and so I remember as I got older, um, you took these, uh, the health you know, the health programs in middle school and, and of course, high school and stuff. So then when you get into research, that that was crazy, because amongst that, I was, I remember googling what was happening uh, in terms of what people were doing with the bodies, because uh, I, I was hearing you, you know, mentioned that they were um, dropping people, you know, elsewhere. And so, mm -hmm. it's, you know, just to go full circle on this story, it's just the parallels of the experience from my recollection and even growing up in high school, I remember doing the, the research and stuff. I was just like, wow, this is crazy. You know, that like, oh my goodness. Yeah. 
it's it's definitely a a, a um a parallel that you can draw between the two uh, epidemics because they the the response was exactly the same the government didn't do anything yep. the the president at the time uh ronald reagan was hesitant to even say the word aids uh, um, oh. out loud mm-hmm. uh the the president um now uh that i'm mean, not not now but the uh president trump uh he totally mishandled uh this whole thing and and oh, yeah. basically lied to us about uh, what was happening and what they were going to do to try and fix it. I mean, the whole time that uh, he was addressing it in any way, he was, you know, singing platitudes and and um, and downplaying it and making people think that it would go away with the sunlight, that type of thing. It yeah. was the same response that Ronald Reagan had, but Ronald Reagan at least... Um, uh, at least after him, uh, presidents after him at least did uh, dedicate part of the budget to the uh, National Institutes of Health and the CDC to study the disease, to see what they what could be done to develop a vaccine or develop some sort of cure for it. They did address it, but Ronald Reagan did not address it in, in an eight year, uh, excuse me, in an eight year span. He did nothing. And that's why... Um, people uh uh people that were survivors and relatives of people who had died of aids that's why they'd made the aids quilt and put it on the on the white house lawn on the um uh on the on the national mall so that it would embarrass him into doing something and he still did nothing and you know um i hope i got it right i think isn't that date in april huh isn't the that world, world aids uh, thing? World AIDS, uh, I think so. I think it's, um, oh, it's either, I think, the 18th or 19th. Call me off guard. Yeah. Yeah. Call me off guard, but yes. (laughs) Yes, because it just passed. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, though I was a a child and a teenager um, growing up through that, I did have some experience with it, and I and I am aware of the things that happened uh, back then. Um, it was not uh, something that was swept under the rug, especially in in uh, the bigger cities, uh, because when street people started to get sick, then it became a real issue, and th- then people were talking about it. I, I can still remember. Um, my my parents uh, talking about it and uh, trying to explain it to my two older siblings and um, they were having a discussion about it but they were coming from a standpoint they didn't know any more than they were told uh, from the news they didn't have any idea um, how it was transitioned uh, transmitted and uh, but they did the best that they could to explain to them because you know they were older and you know had um, had become uh, sexually active. So this was something that they wanted to make sure that they didn't just pick up and bring home. You know, um, it has it has permeated my family uh, in uh, many and different ways. Um, I know several of my family members, uh, extended family that is that are HIV positive, 
and have been living with the disease for a long time and they manage it with drugs. And um, um, they also contributed to my education about it, but uh, who I credit with that, uh, most of that education is Hector Extravaganza. Looking at the youth of today compared to when you were youth, Mm-hmm. What do you think of it today? Like, do you think like Gen Z and us millennials, are we doing too much to you compared to what you grew <laughs> up with? Or do you like to see that it's more free? Like- <laughs> I, I like to, I, I love the fact that you can live your life as you will and identify as you will. I love that because I know that I contributed to that spirit of, of freeness for you. But what I don't like is when we're not respected for giving you that opportunity to live the way that you do. Um, young gay men, especially, um, they really get under my skin when they're disrespectful because you didn't get thrown out of your house because we taught your parents how to love you. We, we taught your parents how to care about you. Um, our generation was the one that took all the ass whoopings so that you didn't have to. We were the ones that got beat up in the, in the train station. We were the ones that got attacked um, just walking down the street and being our, ourselves. We were the ones. You don't get that now. And you can walk down the street with a full beard in, a, in, a, in an evening gown and makeup head to toe. And nobody's gonna say a word to you. That's because people like me took the ass beatings that you don't have to take now. So um, that is what I would consider doing too much. If you don't respect the fact that there was a, um, there were gay men and women uh, long before you who stood in the gap for you so that when you came along, you didn't have the same struggles. You can get the job that you want today. You can go to the college that you want today. You can be who you are today. Now still in, in I think it's like 27 or 28 states, you can still be fired for being gay. You can still not get a job for being gay in That's 27 states in 2021. But my, my point in saying that is that uh, a young gay man or, or woman who glosses over the fact that they can live the life that they do now because there were other people who uh, went through all the struggles that they don't have to. You don't have to endure much of anything, you know, um, because of people like myself. And thank you for being a pioneer. Of course, you know, me personally, I'm not part of the LGBT community, Mm -hmm. but I have a relationship with the community because I, I was bullied when I was a little kid. I was called everything ugly, all because of, you know, where my parents came from. Mm -hmm. And the LGBT were always there for me. I got beat up, my best friend who's transgender, she had my back. When I was down and I needed help, my gay friends had me. So it's like, to hear you say all of this, it's like, it's completely true. Like, I don't even mean to get emotional, but Mm -hmm. it it is disrespectful because 
your community gets appropriated so much and you know it's disrespectful and even watching movies like the queen or paris is burning i'm just sitting here like wow we owe the lgbt our vocabulary like reading like girl (laughs) like everything that you could imagine me say like just the way i'm talking right now Mm -hmm. it's all coming from your community and i never knew this and even when you know you have people that know this they want to do funny things like you know hey like they just want to make it into a something else kind of like how people were calling um dips what were they calling dips before do you remember yasmin nah I don't. Sorry, there was another be. name for a dip that people were calling it. I you mean like a, a Vogue dip? Death drop, yes. De- oh, it's oh. never been a death drop. Yeah, it's a dip. Like, stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they take a little thing and then they appropriate it and be like, oh, it's a dip. And I'm sorry, it's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's death, death drop. drop. like, no, sweetheart, it's called a dip. Oh, you can't tell me. And it's like, oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me, I know. I know. I get I get it all the time. And uh, here in New York, it's a little bit different. I mean, I've traveled all over the country and, you know, um, the gay life is different everywhere I go. But one thing is common is that the younger generation, I feel, and it's not everyone, but I do feel that the younger generation doesn't have an appreciation for the freedom that they have today because they got it so easily we didn't we didn't you know i'm i'm out at work i'm out to my family i'm out to my kids and you know if this were 1994 again i could not be that i couldn't be that it just would not work you know, and I'm in New York, one of the most liberal cities in the world. And I just could not be my authentic self until I was grown and, and doing my own thing. And, you know, I was nurtured and, and encouraged to be uh, my whole self all the time and never hide or be ashamed of it. And it, while it took me a long time to come to grips with it, I'm here and, and this is who I am now. And this is who I was always supposed to be. So how do you feel about the movie Paris is Burning? Because of course, the found, some of the founding house members and some of the you know, other people that were involved in the house are preserved forever. Like, you know, for example, Miss Carmen Extravaganza, even though she passed away in 1988. No, that's we, Angie, that's, that's Angie. That's oh. Angie. Angie passed away in 93, Carmen is still alive. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my goodness. I am so sorry, sir. I meant to say Miss Venus. I am so sorry. Oh, Venus, yes. Yes, Venus, that's yes. what I meant to say. I said okay. Miss Angie. I'm so sorry. Yes, for example, Miss Venus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. like, how does it feel to, like, see that? Because, like, seeing her, like, today, she's still iconic. Um, well, the way that I feel about Paris is Burning is um, it was like a, a, a primer to gay life and ballroom. It was like, uh, for me, it was, it was like a blueprint to how to navigate my, uh, my ballroom life. And it showed me how to sell it, how to perform, 
um, how I want to be uh, perceived when I walk on the floor. I want them to be like, okay, well, he's going to be something to be dealt with. You know what I mean? Um, Paris is Burning taught me that. Now, the people that are in Paris is Burning, they have a very, very different feeling about the, about the movie in the sense that, and, you know, to an extent, my father was like this too. And Carmen was like this. They felt that um, even though it started out as a documentary, it basically became a, a feature film that made a lot of money for the, the producers and the director, but the people who were portrayed in the movie didn't get very much of anything. And those, those few that did get something had to split like a very paltry sum. So they're really, really bitter about that movie. And they um, really took issue with the fact that they made this iconic uh, masterpiece, if you will, and got nothing for it. And, you know, on one hand, I'm like, yeah, they're right. On the other hand, I'm like, but you're preserved for all eternity. And everywhere you go, people are going to know you. You understand? But for the main players, uh, though most of them have passed on now, uh, Junior LaBeza is still here. Um, David Extravaganza, whose name is uh, David Ultra Omni Extravaganza now, or David Extravaganza Ultra Omni. I keep, I keep forgetting how he makes it now. Um, but he's still, he's still here. Um, Grandfather Hector um, is, uh, he, he's preserved in our memories, but he was here long after that film was made. Uh, Carmen and Brooke from the beach. Uh, my my mother and, and my house sister, they are both still alive and thriving. They both are in very productive and very happy marriages as transgender women and um, with full knowledge. And um, uh, we're going to say that, that just so many of them are. I mean, uh, my, my, what is his name? I'm, I'm trying to think of his name right now. Uh, there's just so many that are still here and that lived for so long after the movie was made that they still, because of that movie, were able to influence nightlife and culture and language and lifestyle. They were able to do that because people were mimicking them. I mean, if you watch um, any of the Housewives shows, and they're all talking about work, you know. Oh, yeah, they're talking yeah. about, oh, Miss Girl, you're throwing shade. That is from the gay community. That is from ballroom. That's not something that they made up. Their gay friends taught them that. And then they have the nerve to be disrespectful to the community, make it make and sense. They, and they do. They do. <laughs> you're absolutely right. You know. Um, so I, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think yeah. that Paris is Burning was is has been very influential um, on the whole, but from a standpoint of the people that were in the movie, they felt like they didn't get much. And I think that it was more from a financial standpoint than it was from what they actually did. I don't think they took it, um, I don't think they understood what they actually did by making that film. Do you understand what I mean? 
because yeah. they were able to influence so many things in American culture right now that, you know, uh, the young LGBTQ people take for granted. You know, they thought it was okay for a boy to walk down the, down the block in, in a full-on dress. Mm-hmm. That was not the norm. The people in that movie brought that to the norm. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, Father Jose was in the movie. Um, he's still living and thriving. Um, I, I mentioned Carmen already. Uh, my brother Mark Extravaganza, who was who is um, iconic face. I mean, the boy looks like they just cast him in marble for the rest of his life. He still <laughs> looks like that. Like so the way sorry. that he looks in the film, he looks just like that right now. Just wow. you know, he's an older man. That's all. Um, even David, um, the one I told you about with the coat, David has the same face that he did then, but you can tell he's an older man now. Um, the, the difference is, is that they live, they survive. They came through everything. And what I tell people that um, downgrade or downplay the movie, I say, but look what it did. Look what those individuals did. People talk like that today because of them. People dress like that today because of them. People preserve their labels and their, uh, um, their uh, luxury things because these people made that, like, uh, made that a statement. You know, back in the days, you know, people were wearing Gucci and all of that way back in the days. They were wearing that, but they weren't, it wasn't a statement for them. You know what I mean? Ballroom made it a statement. There's a whole category called labels. And you come, you come dressed in every label you got. Okay. And it has to be current. You know, it can't be, you know, two years ago. It has to be right in the same season that you're walking the ball. That's what makes it a statement. Does that make sense? But yeah. um, people now preserve their labels. You know, everywhere you go, I mean, everything you see on TV and they're all labeled up, it's because they saw that in ballroom. They saw that from Paris is Burning. So uh, uh, again, it was um, tremendously instrumental in affecting culture and the way that we view certain things today. And so I'm, I'm forever grateful that it was made because there was no blueprint before except what you had to learn on the street being with people that's the only thing that's the only way you would really learn how to to serve so to speak if that makes sense to you yes. so um the, the the other thing too i don't know if you watched it to the very end um the the young man that's voguing at the very end on the pier in christopher street mm. that was my best friend martin extravaganza Oh, is he still here? Yeah, he's still here. He's still alive. He's still alive. Um, but you, you want to, you, one thing I find really funny is that I didn't know that was him because um, while he's voguing all, you know, real feminine and whatnot, in, the, uh, in all the time that we knew each other and we were close, this was the hardest uh, boy that you ever wanted to meet. He was like a gang member. You would never even know that that was him. And it, it 
took me a few times to watch it, and I watched it with him, and he told me that with him, and I recognized it, but I didn't put it together until he confirmed that it was him. So, um, I mean, there are people that are still here today, and they may not appreciate that they didn't get uh, uh, the financial benefits of that movie. What I tell them is that they can take heart in the fact that they influence a world of culture. Honestly, I, like, of course, I personally don't know her, but like people like Miss Angie and Miss Venus and Mr. Hector, like I, it's just a sense that you actually know them. Like, I don't know them, but I have this sense that I actually know them. And it's through these movies because it's just at this point, it's like, wow, like I wish I could meet you to just be like, right. thank you for being who you are. Even though I'm an ally, it's like, thank you. Because you, you've, you guys have done so much. Like, if you actually ask it, I was so nervous about this interview. Like, I kept telling her, I'm like, oh my God, this is like I, an icon here. <laughs> like, but I'm so not, but I'm not. Like, and I don't carry myself that way. Um, I, am, I am a member of the iconic house of extravaganza, but, you know, and I do feel like as part of that house, I am royalty in ballroom, yeah. but I am a very humble person. I am a very uh, serious person about my life and I've uh, dedicated part of my life to nurturing gay men and women who want to be in ballroom and want to uh, flourish that way. I, I am doing exactly what my father did for me. That's beautiful. That is so wonderful. And, um, you know, uh, we reference a lot of Pose, and mm -hmm. I just wanted to know uh, personally from your experience, how do you feel now? Like, because as I said before, um, or we said this uh, before we started recording, you know, coming from how you grew up in New York and uh, everybody had to like hide. Now we're in like the mainstream, you know, Everybody knows uh, drag queens. People are, you know, interested in more uh, documentaries, TV shows about transgender, or, you know, the transgender community and uh, so forth. And so I was just wondering, how do you feel now that everybody is uh, more accepting? We're now having representations, uh, not where we need to be, but at least there is some platform, you know, on TV, like, do you know what like i was so amazed when i watched pose like wasn't pose like the first uh show to ever show like transgender women have a f almost full cast of transgender women right murphy yeah, did that Nalis did that also they they got really raunchy you know what i'm saying you know what <laughs> you know what see, i'm talking about i enjoyed every minute of pose every single minute every single episode well except the candy one that was depressing oh. <laughs> Other than well, that, the, the episode with candy that was venus venus's story but it yeah. was put on candy so um was going to say that that um, it didn't happen exactly like that, but it was a very similar story. And you know, as, as I said from the beginning, Pose, um, it, like like uh, Paris is Burning, Pose has been very influential for this 
uh, crop of people, uh, straight, gay, and whoever they identify as, however they identify. Um, it's been uh, it's been like a primer for them. It's it's a way for them to understand people that they're seeing. You know, they understand that boy in a dress at school now. They understand, you know, the the lesbian girl that wants to cut off all her hair and you know be the stereotypical lesbian. Um, they understand a little bit better now because they actually watch it on TV. And a lot of people's uh, perceptions are really tied to what they watch and what they hear on TV. So I'm grateful to them. My father was a, was a consultant on the show and um, helped with a lot of the casting. And uh, he was very influential because he and uh, Junior LaBeja and um, Saul, uh, I forget what house Saul is in, Dr. I call him Dr. Saul. Um, those were three of the original consultants on the show, and they had a lot of input as to the writing and as to the actual story. And so that's how Pose got it so right, because they had people who were there and lived that life and understood that life for them to be able to tell somebody that's 30, 40 years younger than them how to write the, the part for each and every one of them. So that the, the story could be told in its most realist, most authentic form without it being attributed to that specific character in real life. Does that make sense? Yes, it you does. know, yeah. And, you know, um, <clears throat> actually, I knew about that part because uh, I think it's on YouTube. They actually have a behind the scene. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Of, uh, I think it was, I can't remember what episode it was. I don't know if... Um, but it was one of the judging panels. You see him on stage and you see him walking around and he was just, he looked like he was the boss. <laughs> it was, yeah, he was just, yeah. He, he was, he was, he was a presence and a force. Trust me when I tell you, he really was. I um, and and I'm, I know I'm forgetting uh, Jack Mizrahi. Jack Mizrahi is the most influential person in ballroom today. Um, he is one of the founders of the House of Mizrahi, and um, he is right now, I, I think he helped produce some of the, the um, episodes in this last season, but he's also a producer for Legendary on HBO Max. I don't know if you guys have watched that yet. I was actually going to save that question yeah. to the end. I was going to ask how you felt about Legendary. I'm glad you brought that up. Only seen um, I, I like Legendary from a competition standpoint. I do not like the judging because there's only one person on the judging panel that's qualified to judge anybody, and that is Laomi. And the um, the the host, Deshaun, those are the only ones that are qualified to be judging any ballroom, any any antics in ballroom. I find it um, Jamila, whoever she is, nobody knows her. She's never been to a ball. Um, she she's found out about ballroom since she got picked for the show. Uh, Megan Thee Stallion, I love her music. I love her. I love her spirit and her spunk. But if you uh, if you look at her last five videos, they're all ballroom, and she appropriated everything uh, from the dance. She made a whole song. Oh. Uh, that song, body adi adi. Yeah, um, that's that's a chant that the the MCs used to chant when the girls were walking by. 
when the uh, female and the, the uh, transgender women were walking the category body, the, the MC would get on the, on the mic and he would say that over and over again, body, yaddy, yaddy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, here comes Ms. So-and-so with body, yaddy, yaddy. That, she, she made a whole song out of it, completely appropriated. Almost um, like Vogue. She, she, does, she's, she doesn't have an, a, a close enough affiliation to ballroom to where she could be on TV in judging. Um, I understand why they have these judges. You know, they got to sell sponsorships and things so that they can pay for the show. Totally get it. But um, as far as the competition is concerned, I love it. It's not anything like a real ball would be. Not at all. But... It's the closest watered-down thing that America can um, can uh, tolerate. Mm. Because the things that you would see at a ball, you're not going to see that on Legendary. And it's funny you mention that because I do listen to other podcasts. And I was listening to the one with Bob, um, Sibling Rivalry with Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange. Um, Exchange. Uh-huh. And they were talking about Legendary. This is actually, I think, last week's episode. And they were saying, for anybody that watches Legendary, just know it's nothing like ballroom. And they explained it, too. They said, when you go to a real ball, they said there are so many categories that they didn't cover in Legendary because they don't have time. And apparently ballroom can be, like, six hours. Is that true? No, girl. (laughs) Sorry. Listen, um, we would get ready for the ball around 10, 11 o'clock. The okay. ball has already started, but the categories that were important were always in the middle of the ball, right? Mm-hmm. So that meant that you get to the ball at like two or three in the morning. The ball would sometimes go to 10 in the morning. It went all night. There were balls wow. at, at some of the clubs uh, there were balls at some of the clubs, like the, the Roxy. Those balls would, would start at 1 in the morning, and they would end at 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon the next day. Wow. Yeah. I, when I told you before, we, we party and we go out there to play, we go out there to play. And we're not going oh. to every ball. We're going to go to the important balls. We're going to show up, and we're going to uh, take everything we came to get. That's just my perspective from the House of Extravaganza. I'm not going to the ball unless I know I can win. I'm not going to the ball unless I respect the house that's throwing the ball. I'm not going to the ball unless the 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 ball that they're throwing is going to have some major exposure. Other than that, not going. And that was kind of how I was raised in ballroom. You don't have to show up to every ball because people will get tired of you. And once they get tired of you, then you, you keep walking and they will stop even judging you. You know what I mean? So you want to keep it fresh for them. And so you don't walk every ball. Well, this last question, of course, is probably cliche. If we were in a house, what category, and I'm going to stand up a little bit. Here I am. What category okay. do you think I could do? <laughs> if, Give me one if second. I ever a parallel universe, I was in the house. <laughs> second. I mean, if you were going to walk a category, uh, I don't know if you can dance or you can Vogue or anything like that, but you could definitely walk Vogue because your, your frame 
your frame would allow for the flow of the movements to to be fluid and it would most likely look graceful. Um, you could also walk a category called luscious body. And um, luscious body is for those women who have full figures and they feel sexy and they exude sexiness and, you know, they're pretty girls. Um, those girls walk and, you know, um, my sister Destiny Extravaganza, she used to walk that category and she was body of the year for five years in a row. That's how okay. she was. Uh, she's a transgender woman. Um, she's a tall woman. I don't know how tall are you? You look kind of tall. Oh, I'm five three. I like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, you look tall on the on the thing. No, she's tall. She's like she's like five nine, but Ooh. she's very full figured, very full figured, hey. and she has like a twenty two inch waist. And so when she would walk, they would just lose their minds when she would come in because it would always be in some outrageous costume that um, sh showed off and accentuated her body. And that was the epitome of the category. So that is what she walked and that's why she won so much. But I think you could do that. You, I think you would be good for that. Well, I used to be a cheerleader and I was on dance team for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I do have a little bit of dance background. like. I'm, like, if you give me a routine, I can get it in a week. Like, I'm okay. one of those people. I'm like, I can't get it the same day. But <laughs> within about seven to ten days, I'm like, okay, got this. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> totally understand. Yes, absolutely. Um, everybody has a place in ballroom. Um, it's just where you feel the most comfortable. And wherever that is... Uh, it's always good to have somebody nurturing you to encourage you to continue to do it because you may not win the first time. You may not uh, make any impact whatsoever, but the more you walk, the more you learn and the more you know how to go about impressing judges and getting um, the whole theme of what the, what the category is about. You're able to get that, you're able to convey that better as you, as, the more you walk. And that's amazing. We just want to say, Mr. Lenny, thank you so much for doing this interview. Because like I said, you could have been like, I'm too busy. But you're very <laughs> humble, as you say. <laughs> and we cannot wait to see more of you in the future, to learn more about your house. Hopefully you could come back on an episode <laughs> in the future. Thank you. Like I'd be happy to. Part. And, be and oh, hopefully... Oh, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> do this a lot i'm so sorry i just really wanted to know um because uh my last question for you actually okay um i know you're a veteran and you've uh retired from ballroom i was just wanting to know um possibly two minutes or less sorry we're running out of time okay no um, problem what would you advise to the new kids i would advise them to if you if you were accepted into a house stay with that house and let that house nurture you. Um, a lot of kids now uh, get in the house for the prestige of it all. And once they get in the house and see it's not what, what they thought it was going to be, then they leave and they go to another house, see the same thing, and then they leave and go to another house. I would say that um, choose wisely, make sure that that house is nurturing you and your ambitions in ballroom, and uh, make sure that you have the right parents every house member has their own 
personal parents, and then there's the parents of the house. So if you have the right uh, personal parents that are guiding you properly in the way that you want to go in ballroom, that is going to be your best bet to be a success. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really enjoyed this interview. Like, bless you, and thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I feel a whole lot better now that I've done one. So now I can go and do this for my little brothers and sisters in, in Mexico and Brazil. Yep, and we will, of course, I will be making a donation to two organizations for you. Do you wanna say which ones I'm donating? Um, to the American Cancer Society and Gay Men's Health Crisis Center. Yes, and it's very important to those who are listening to us right now and watching us, please donate and learn more about these organizations as we are gonna donate. All so right, thank well, thank you guys again. And for everyone who's listening, thank you and uh, or watching as well. And hopefully we'll see everyone next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.